We'll stand now for the reading of God's word. It is found in Isaiah chapter 41. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 10. Isaiah 41, 8 through 10. If you are using the Pew Bible, it is on page 601. Page 601. This is God's word. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you today and we come longing for Emmanuel, longing to know what it means that God is with us. And so, Lord, we pray that as we look at your word this morning, you would give us those words of comfort, that we would respond to your word with exactly what you've called us to do, to fear not. So help us, O Lord, to understand. Holy Spirit, we pray, open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts to receive your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There's some who say it's the the greatest health crisis facing the Western world, not just the United States, the Western world. Uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Vivek Murthy, former Surgeon General of the United States, wrote in the Harvard Business Journal, said that during my years of caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. 35% of Americans over 45 are constantly lonely. In fact, it has led to a a a national health crisis Uh, we have seen for three years in a row. First time this has happened since the early part of the 1900s, three years in a row, we are seeing a decline in life expectancy of those in the United States, and it's due to what they're calling uh, deaths of despair. Uh, Suicide, drug addiction, liver disease, uh, these sorts of things. First time it's happened since, since World War I, and that was during World War I, where there also was a major flu pandemic. Uh, and so we're seeing loneliness is taking its toll on our health, on, on uh, more than just our health, our, our well-being, even our, our national sense of identity. And loneliness, of course, is not the same thing as, as being alone. There, there's some of us who actually like being alone. Right? Some of you, after a week with family, a day alone would be... Another reason to give thanks, right? And so you, you love the opportunity. And so, but, but sometimes, though, you can actually be lonely when you're around people all the time. You might go to work, go to school, be at home, and you can still feel incredibly alone, very isolated, all by yourself. The difference between being alone and lonely is that loneliness carries this sense of, uh, of rejection and isolation, uh, when you're lonely, you don't feel like there's anyone who's truly in it with you, that there's anyone that you can really count on in the day of trouble who is, who is for you. And it is a terrible thing to feel alone in the world. We were made for human connection. But we were not only made for human connection, we were made for communion with God. Uh, in fact, without that communion with God, the best we can do is hope for it to be uh, as lonely together. 
We, we, we were designed for that, and nothing fills that void. We are empty without it. And yet God in his kindness has seen our helplessness, has seen our need for communion with him. And in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph learns that his fiancée, Mary, is pregnant. Remember what happened then? Joseph learns his fiancée, Mary, is pregnant, and when he learns that she's pregnant, he's going, well, I'm not the father. And so he decides he's going to put her away quietly. And then an angel comes to Joseph in the dream, and he tells her not to put her away. In fact, he says that who she is, what she's conceived with is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And he's, after saying this, that Mary is, has a child that is coming from the Lord, he says, quotes to her from Isaiah the prophet, who says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Now, what does that mean, though? Uh, have you ever been in a gathering of Christians and you pray? In fact, this will probably happen when you go to your community next, and you pray for one another, and you'll pray something like, Lord, be with so-and-so. Be with so-and-so as they go through these trials. Be with Billy as he's in this uh, illness. Be with uh, Susie as she goes to visit with her family. What are you actually asking God to do? One, you know, I, I prayed that uh, lots of times, and one time I had uh, a young Christian come up to me and say, what do you, does that mean? Oh, that's like one of those phrases we use in the church and we don't actually ever think about what that means. What do you want God to do when you're saying, be with so-and-so? Over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about what it means to be with so-and-so. What do we want God to do when he is with us? And so we're going to reflect on that. And we're going to begin here in Isaiah where God gives this Emmanuel promise to his people in the face of uh, well, not probably, in the face of the greatest crisis the nation of Judah would ever face, and that is the exile. So having read the passage, let's look again at, first of all, the barrier. Why is it that we don't experience Emmanuel? What is the barrier to Emmanuel, the barrier to God's presence? And we see that the barrier to God's presence is sin. Uh, a little bit of the context, uh, we looked at this earlier in the year, this section of Isaiah, not this particular passage, but what we saw then is in the early 7th century, Judah's king, Hezekiah, who was a very good king, he was, he was a righteous king, most of them were not, most of them were terrible, but Hezekiah was a good king. Uh, but he, Hezekiah became very sick and almost died, in fact he should have died, and he had this miraculous recovery. And after he recovered, the king of Babylon's son sent some emissaries to congratulate him on getting well. Now, this is a big deal. Babylon at this time is the rising superpower. It is the, the, one of the great powers in the world. Judah at this time is a third-rate backwater kingdom. I mean, it, it's, it's like you think about military powers. Now you have a United States, you have China, you have Russia, and you have Belize. No, not Belize, right? Uh, and, that, and so... Judah is kind of like Belize. It is, uh, it is a just, it's just you know, a country that has no power, no influence, nothing to, to its credit. And so when the son of the king of Babylon sends a, get, you know, a congratulations note to Hezekiah, Hezekiah gets all excited because he didn't even know Babylon knew he existed. And so he's thinking, here's my chance. I can get a friend in high places. You know, maybe I'll show them who I am, and they'll befriend me, and they'll want to form an alliance with me, and that way I'll be safe. 
And so he takes the emissaries and he shows them his whole kingdom and opens up his whole treasury and shows them all the might and all the power that he has. And it's, you know, you can look at the, the Babylonians going in and going, huh, wow, you have an airplane. Great, you know. Uh, it, it just, uh, it would not have been much at all. It would have been very weak, very insignificant. But, but Hezekiah is flirting is what he's doing. He's saying, look at me, I'm beautiful, I'm attractive, I have money, I have power, you know, don't you want to be in an alliance with me? Now, at first, that looks like it was relatively harmless, but, but what God says that he is doing is he's committing spiritual adultery. He's committing spiritual adultery because what he's doing is he's looking to Babylon to provide for him what he should be looking for God to provide. He's looking for Babylon to provide him with security, with, a, with a worth, a sense of identity. And that's how spiritual adultery works. Now, most of the time, uh, we don't sin necessarily by rejecting God altogether. You know, we don't become atheists. Uh, but instead, we look to something else or someone else to provide for us the security and the sense of worth that we crave. Uh, we might say, you know, I believe in God, but to feel worthwhile, I need these other people to be impressed with me as well. Now, I believe in God, but to be secure, I need to have enough resources that I can take care of myself no matter what happens. You know, I believe in God, uh, but, but you know, to be a, a person of, of any significance, I have to be successful. See, when we do that, what we're doing is we're, 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 we're being spiritually adulterous. We're saying, yeah, I, I worship God, but what I'm looking to, to, to give me my sense of worth, my sense of security, my sense of identity is something else. We're looking for a mistress to provide for us what our spouse should. That's adulterous, and that's what Hezekiah is doing. And so uh, what we find, though, is God, though, is unabashedly monogamous. He will not share his love with another. And like any good and faithful spouse, he will not tolerate us worshiping him while looking for satisfaction in the other gods. So in Isaiah 39, verses 6 and 7, God says, if Babylon is what you want, Babylon is what you're going to get. If you like her more than you like me, you get her. And so you're going to get Babylon, and I'm going to ship you off to Babylon. And so they're taken off into captivity for Babylon for 70 years. So in Isaiah 39, 6 and 7, God says, I'm going to give you what you want. And that's often how the judgment of God works. When we, we want something other than him, God says, have it. Have it. I give it to you. And, uh, but after uh, spending these two verses on judgment, two verses on judgment, God spends the next two chapters on how he's going to bless Judah. Look at the ratio there. Two verses of judgment, two chapters of blessing. And these two chapters of blessing, God speaks these words of comfort. He says, I'm going to give you Babylon, but I'm not going to abandon you forever. And so he offers these words of comfort. And the first words of comfort are those that we read moments ago when we lit the Advent candles. God says to them in Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2, Comfort, comfort my people, say, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, when it says she's received double for all her sins, that doesn't mean that Israel's getting twice the punishment that she deserves. Rather, that uh, the penalty for sin is being paid in full. 
uh, that the payment for sin is, is large and abundant. And it isn't that Israel's suffering in Babylon is enough to pay for her sin. This is all part of a larger context that culminates in Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, God says there's going to be one called the suffering, suffering servant who's going to come and make full payment for all that Israel and for all that God's people have done. Isaiah 53, God says this, but he, speaking of Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that he brought us, that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what God is saying is while their exile to Babylon was a consequence of their sin, Babylon was not payment for their sin. That would come by the suffering servant. The suffering servant uh, would come and he would die and he would make that payment. See, what happens is that, that sin creates a barrier between us and God. Uh, the Bible describes God as a consuming fire. He is holy. And as a consuming fire... That which is sin cannot stand before him. So think of sin this way. Sin, God is a consuming fire. Sin is like gasoline. And when we, we sin against the holy God, it is like we're drenched in the gasoline. And so if we come before God with all of that sin on us, what's going to happen to us? We'll be consumed. And so, and so we have to keep our distance. We can't draw near. God has to stay away from us. And it's not until our sin has been removed can we draw near to God. And so what does Isaiah say? It says that God has taken our sin, that, 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 that we're soaked in it, that we're drenched in it, and he has taken it, and he's taken it all, and he's laid it on Christ. And on the cross, Jesus bore the punishment of sin. He was consumed so that we might be set free. He suffered the judgment. And that means then is our sin has been removed. And so now we see where the blessing of Emmanuel comes in. The blessing of Emmanuel comes in because now we can draw into God's presence. So the barrier has been removed. The barrier of, to God's presence is sin. And now we have the blessing of God's presence. And we see that, first of all, in security in God's presence. Security in God's presence. We can now draw near to God. And so, again, looking back at uh, Isaiah 41 that we read moments ago, verse 10. Notice what God says. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Some claim that that command, fear not, is the most repeated command in the Bible. Someone has said there are actually 365 versions of that in the Bible. I have not been able to locate all of those. All I know is there are a lot, a lot of times. But the Bible never tells us Fear not, screw up your courage, you've got this. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, screw up your courage, fear not, not because you've got this, but because God says, I've got this. Fear not, why? Because I am with you. Over and over again, we see this in the Bible. Uh, a few examples. In Genesis chapter 15, God calls Abraham to follow him and enters into a covenant with him. And God says, fear not, I am your shield. In Genesis 26, God calls Abraham's son who is struggling. And he says to him, fear not, for I am with you. In Genesis 28, he calls Isaac's son, who's Abraham's grandson. And when he was running for his life, and so when Jacob's running for his life, God says, 
I am with you, and I'll keep you wherever you go. I will not leave you. Six times in the book of Jeremiah, God says, I am with you. Twice in the book of Haggai, God says, I am with you. When Paul's on his missionary journey and everyone is trying to kill him and he goes into a city and he's, he's supposed to preach the gospel, God says, I am with you. No one will harm you. And then, of course, remember Jesus' last words to his disciples as he sends us out on mission in Matthew 28. He sends us out to, to proclaim the gospel. And what does he say? And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Over and over and over again, God reassures his people with the promise of his presence. And if God is with you, then nothing can stand against you. So here in Isaiah, God tells us why we should not fear. He says, do not fear, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The reason we can go out into the world and engage in life without fear is because God is with us. See, the world is a scary place. You are not in control when you leave this building. In fact, you're not in control while you're in this building, right? Uh, we, you don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know what's going on in your You can't control what's happening to your children. You can't control what's happening with your future. You are not in control. And so for someone to say, fear not, Everything's going to be okay. It's kind of light and trite unless there's someone with you who can care for you during those dark days. Uh, and so the, the reason we have confidence is because God is with us. And a number of years ago, I was talking to um, Rodney Davila. Rodney is one of our missionaries. He's in uh, Costa Rica. Rodney's actually Costa Rican. And he, uh, he was explaining to me why Costa Rica has no military. And I thought, that's kind of strange. How can you have a country with no, no army? And he said, well... We used to have one, and all the army ever did was overthrow the government, you know? And so we, we were just having coup after coup, and so finally the people got sick of it and said, we're better off with no army. And they voted to get rid of the army and uh, use the peace dividend for education and health care and so on. And, uh, but the problem is, Nicaragua's, uh, excuse me, Costa Rica's neighbor to the north is Nicaragua, which is not exactly a peaceful place. And at one point, according to Rodney, he said the Nicaraguan army uh, started getting a little close to the Costa Rican border and was thinking about invading. And people in Costa Rica were a little bit nervous. Well, do you know who the southern border of Costa Rica is? Panama, which is home to the Panama Canal, which at this time was controlled by the United States. The United States has a vital interest in the Panama Canal. Nicaraguan armies bordering on the, on the north. Uh, the United States sees that. The United States sends a few jets to fly over the Nicaraguan army. Suddenly, the Nicaraguan army disperses. Decided we don't want anything to do with Costa Rica. Why? Are they scared of Costa Rica? No. Costa Rica's got the United States. So Rodney says, we don't need an army. We've got you, Right? And, and so, yeah, thank you for those of you who have been to the Panama Canal. And so, so the same thing with us. We, we, are, we can uh, be secure, we can be safe, not because we are mighty. We are not mighty. We are weak, we are powerless. But God has promised his presence with us. Fear not, why? For I am with you, for I am with you. And so we have the, uh, the promise of God's presence. But not only does God's presence provide us with security, it also is our source of joy, the joy of God's presence. 
the joy of God's presence. You know, by his death and resurrection, Jesus did not merely take away our guilt. He also took away our shame. You know, the words guilt and shame, sometimes we use those interchangeably, but they, they overlap in their meaning, but they're, they're actually a little bit different. Uh, I think uh, Ed Welch sums it up well in describing the difference between guilt and shame this way. He says, guilt lives in the courtroom where you stand before the judge. It says, you're responsible for wrongdoing, and you're legally answerable. Uh, you're wrong. You have sinned. That's what guilt is. Shame, though, shame lives in the community. And the community can feel like a courtroom, but it says you don't belong, you're unacceptable, uh, you're unclean, you're disgraced. Or to put it as uh, Kurt Thompson puts it, guilt is something I feel because I've done something bad. Shame is something I feel because I am bad. Uh, and so, so you do something bad, and so you feel that shame. In fact, we feel shame in, in lots of different ways. Sometimes we have what you might call micro-shaming events, small things, you know. Uh, shame is that feeling you want to run and hide, you want to, to cover up. You know, you may have experienced it at Thanksgiving. Anybody drop a dish? Okay. Uh, you know, you know, you know, you know that, that feeling you, you get, you, you know, and, and like, is it really that big of a deal? It's not that big of a deal, but... You, all of a sudden, everybody looks at you, and you all of a sudden turn red or something, right? You, you, want, to, you want to hide because what you're saying is not, and this is, this is me, by the way, um, is you'll be saying, you know, it's not this I dropped a dish, dish. I'm the type of person who drops dishes, right? And, and there's a difference. It's not that I did something clumsy. It's I am a klutz. That's shame. Or, uh, you know, you made an insensitive comment. Have you ever gone to, you know, you're there at Thanksgiving dinner and you, you're talking the whole time and that night you're going, I can't believe I said that. You, you ever rehearse that? Am I the only one, right? I think you do too. Um, and, and that's shame. That, 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 that's shame to think I'm the kind of person who, who says those sorts of things. And so it's, uh, uh, you, you know, you think, what's wrong with you? Sometimes shame goes deeper. You know, you get fired from a job. And you're embarrassed to show up. You go through a breakup or a divorce. You get together with friends and family, and they ask how your child is doing, and your child is doing horribly. They're rebelling. They're in sin, and, and you don't want to face it. Uh, you know, I, I remember well coming home at, at Thanksgiving after my second college disaster and, uh, you know, going, I don't want to tell people why I'm not going back. I, I don't want to face it. I don't want to deal with it. I, I want to run and hide. I don't want to be around that. And so uh, shame has that, that feeling that, um, that there's something wrong with me. And not only that, because shame gives you that sense of something's wrong with me, you have this feeling that others will not want to be near you, that others will reject you. And so oftentimes the way we deal with shame, shame leads to this fear of rejection. And so since I'm afraid I'm going to be rejected, why don't I go ahead and get it over with now and I'll reject them so that they can't reject me. We withdraw from community. We withdraw from others. We recoil from being like others. Uh, uh, so to avoid the pain of rejection, we avoid community and relationship altogether. You hide behind a mask. You don't let anyone get close. We're we're like, you know, remember Beast and Beauty and the Beast? He's hiding there in the shadows, right? Because he's afraid if he comes out of the shadows and she sees what he looks like, she's going to recoil in horror. And that's what shame does to us. It causes us to want to hide. 
And if we feel that way around others, how much more do we feel this way around God? I mean, God is holy. God is blameless. God is perfect. Not only that, God can see right through you. He knows things about you that you won't even admit to yourself. Uh, even your thoughts are not hidden from him. We want to treat our shame by running or hiding or covering it up. We want to deal with it by pretending that it doesn't exist and acting like we have it together. But all those uh, things, these, these cures that we try for shame, are actually, uh, you know, make the disease worse. We, we put shame in the dark, and it's like mold. It just grows, and it grows, and it grows. It thrives in the darkness. The only way to be free of shame is to be both fully exposed and to be fully loved. But here's the problem. If I am fully exposed, I cannot be fully loved. If I'm fully exposed and, and, and people see my sin and the depth of it and the horror of it, if they know what I'm really like, then there's no way they could love me. No way they could love me. So we, we, we're caught on the horns of a dilemma. Hide and not be loved because we're not known, or be known and not be loved because we're so ashamed. But what the Bible tells us is that God knows the truth about us. He knows what we're like. He knows what our sin is. And that's what God promises here in Isaiah. Now remember the context. Remember the context. God says, I am with you. I fear not, for I am with you. But God knows who Israel is. He knows who Judah is. He knows that Judah has sinned against them. He knows they decided to trust in a foreign power for security. And the truth is about you is God knows the truth about you, right? He knows your sin. He knows your shame. He knows what you've done. He knows things about you that your spouse doesn't know, your family doesn't know, that no one knows. He knows the truth about you, and yet he still came and, and, and draws near to us because Jesus bore our shame. As we read in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by mankind. Jesus was a man of suffering and familiar with pain. He was like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. It's a reminder of Jesus on the cross. Remember when they took Jesus to the cross, they stripped him down. Can you imagine this? stripped completely naked, hung up for everyone to see. You can't cover up. You can't hide. People are walking by. They're shouting derision at him. They're ridiculing him. They're mocking him. They're saying, you say you're, the, you're, you're this great Messiah. If you are, then come down from the cross. Prove who you are. And the whole time, too, he's not only receiving their shame, he is bearing the shame of the sin of his people. He is bearing all the guilt and shame, so much so that, that he feels that even the Father has hidden his face from him. He is so, so disgusting. Even his Father cannot look upon him. And he bears that shame, and on the cross, he bears the full penalty of it. He was humiliated with our shame. But he did it all so that we might be robed with his glory. The shame of the cross is not the end of the story. That's why we as Christians don't celebrate a cross with Jesus on it. We celebrate a cross with Christ off because he is off the cross. He is, uh, he is, he is risen. He is, he's uh, ascended into heaven. He is now clothed with glory. And he calls us to share in his glory. And so as we read in Isaiah 41 verse 9, he says to us, you 
whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from the furthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Do you get the impact of that? Now, originally, God is saying this to the nation of Judah. He says, you're going to be scattered throughout the nations, and I'm going to bring you back to the promised land. But we see in the New Testament that God applies that to all his people, that God has called his people you know, it's like one who goes out and searches for them and, and hunts for them, for the lost sheep. And he's gone out and he's sought his lost sheep from every corner of the earth, bringing them into his family, as far away even as Colorado Springs. He goes to reach out and to bring them in because he has gone looking for you. He has gone looking for you. He has chosen you. That's God's love for us. He's the pursuing God who comes after us, choosing us, seeking to save us, pursuing us to the very ends of the earth. And then he gives us this promise, and I will not cast you off. We live with this fear that one day he's going to reject us, and God says, no, Jesus took your rejection so that you can receive my embrace. All your life, you live with the fear of rejection. All your life, you've wondered if you're good enough or smart enough or successful enough. For others, you've lived with this, this constant awareness that you're not enough, that you're too tainted, too sinful, too broken, too weak. And yet here's the God who created all things the God who sustains all things, the God who's robed in majesty and splendor. And he comes and he says, I have chosen you. I want you. I want to be with you. And I'll never, never forsake you. That's what it means that Jesus is our Emmanuel. He is God with us. And because he is God with us, Through what Jesus has done, we can stand before him naked and unashamed because in Christ we are fully known and we are fully loved. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the good news that the gospel gives to us. Creatures who are full of guilt, full of shame for things that we have done, things that we have left undone. We thank you, Jesus, that on the cross you bore that guilt, you bore that shame for everyone who'd put their faith in you. Lord, we would not be drawn to you unless you were drawing us to you. And so, Lord, we can rest in that assurance that if we love you, it is because you have first loved us. So if you find your heart being drawn to God today and realize that that you have been trying to cover up your shame, you've been trying to do so through your work, success, through hiding, through lying, through dressing right through looking right, whatever it may be, I come and ask you to come before God and just lay it all down. Stand bare before him. Confess your sin. Admit who you are. Admit your neediness. Admit your guilt. And hear his words of forgiveness. Say, Lord Jesus, I know that on the cross you bore the guilt and shame of everyone who would trust in you. And so now, O Lord, I'm putting my faith in you because you are my only hope. Forgive me for what I've done. Forgive me for my efforts to cover myself up. And may you now be my glory. And may you now be my covering. And may you now be my hope in my life. And so, Lord, for all of us who put our hope in you, may we live as those who are loved and fear not. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.